Okay, everybody, let's get started with the next session. This is always a dangerous question, but how are we doing on temperature? Got Arctic freezing. Dexter thinks it's like Florida. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys always be thankful for facilities people because they have a thankless job, and it and and so often their job is impossible <laughs> because you've got everybody with different thermostats in their bodies and all this kind of stuff um so you know what um you know i just love this this man that's been teaching us um uh alan we we, we refer to alan as um in our family of churches jeff perswell is the dean of the pastor's college so he would he would be considered one of our premier theologians. I call Alan R. Jeff Perswell here at Sovereign Grace Church. Um, he, his theological aptitude is so wonderful. And he's able, isn't it amazing how able he is to take some very complicated things and make it pretty simple, you know? Um, so that, I just think that is so wonderful. And here's something else. Uh, he's able to be pretty concise. So, so let's look at an opposite uh, pastor on the staff. So you notice that's why we had Alan do a big bulk of the teaching so that it could be an eschatology weekender. If I would have covered all that material, it would have been an eschatology never ender. So that's, you know, so we're so thankful, so thankful for him. Um, so I'm going to cover a... Um, There'll be some weaving in and out of what we've been learning. Um, so I don't know if, have you, did you say that you hold a non-millennial view? Yes. Yeah, yeah have you, I didn't know, I was trying to remember if you came out and said that. And so I do too. Um, so both of us hold an amillennial view. And I want to talk to you about, um, about holding that view. Uh, some of the things that the Lord did to bring me to that, but even more, uh, why, why we believe that uh, God uses that view to help us pastor you better. Um, not that the other view, see, th this is what's so weird about talking about these things, because there are premier pastors that are premillennial. There are premier pastors that are postmillennial. But I'll just share with you why it's a personal conviction of why we, we believe this, this theological position can be really good for your souls. Um, and so that's, that's a big part of what I wanna talk about today, is just, if, if these things don't ultimately affect our hearts, then we failed. If, if, we've, if we've sent you out of here with just, oh, I have a lot of intellectual understanding now, of pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. God loves you. God loves to minister to your heart. And uh, he wants to use truths to change us and to strengthen us and to equip us. So, 
So I'm going to ask you kind of a little different way of coming about this. Um, so, you know, have you heard the phrase, what is the chief end of man? What's the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? So what is the chief end of man? So eschatology is the study of last things or the study of end things. Here's one of my concerns. One of my concerns, so I'm, I, here, why don't we say this? So if, if we asked you, if this was like a, uh, somebody was going to interview you as you were leaving the, uh, the room today, and they asked you, what is the chief end of eschatology? What would you say? Would you, would you have something to say? What is the chief end of eschatology? My concern, particularly with the United States, is that eschatology has been about the events of the end times. I was talking to Justin just a few minutes ago. We are a people, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm, so I'm 62 years old, so just by living a long time, you learn a few things. Um, people, used to, people used to love reading things like the Wall Street Journal. Um, you, you guys, the younger people, would, you'd be amazed at how much people read and how the size of literature and the books that they read. And, and now here we are in a world that, thank God for technology and all these things. But, not the, I mean, be honest. If, if, if you look at something online and it looks like it's going to take you more than five minutes. In fact, how many of the things now say five-minute read? three-minute read, you know, but if it says seven-minute read, that's just, that's just way too long. We are a people who seem to love the headlines. We don't care about the story. We just want to know the headlines, and I think eschatology has taken a real blow there. I think, I think what, what has happened in our world is that it's just the events. It's just the events. It's just the events. Well, I, I want to ask you, have the events of ex eschatology touched your heart? Are they changing you? Are they causing you to love Jesus more? Oh, maybe it was, maybe you do a little bit different. It's kind of freaking me out. I'm more scared about eschatology. I mean, how many of us have been there? I, I know what that's like. I'm, I'm, I don't really want to talk about eschatology because some of the stuff I read in the Bible is pretty scary sounding. That's, that's if we just look at eschatology according to events. I want you to know, so, so even in the, even with, with the amillennial view, one of the beauties, I believe, of the amillennial view is it guards us from just being event-minded about the second coming of Christ. Meaning, and you've heard me say it multiple times, and you're probably, you're probably going to get tired of me saying it, is on Sunday mornings, we don't want to read current events. We don't want to have current events as the, as the lens by which we understand the book of Revelation. Right? You've heard us say that. So what is the chief end of eschatology? And that's where Alice started the, the, uh, our weekender with how we interpret scripture. And this is, so I'm hoping that one of the things you could take away from here is, how do I read my Bible? 
So I think that's a foundational thing. That would be a real win for us if, if you would leave here not just taking some notes about events, but just even going to say, Lord, I want to read my Bible in, in, the, in the way you intended it to be read. And how did the Lord really intend it to be read? And we would call that the redemptive historical method of understanding the Bible. And that's where you hear us say things like, so we want to work really hard at what was the divine intention that was in God's heart when it was first inspired. What did God intend it to mean to the original audience, given their, the grammar of their, the original language, given the context of what they were going through uh, culturally and politically? And we want to work really hard about what did the text mean to them and then be very careful about then how do we apply it today. You guys, the Bible can't mean something now that it didn't mean then. So I think that would be a helpful thought when you're reading your Bible. Um, the, I want to understand what it meant then so that then I, can, I would get more, you'll, you'll get more out of it about how to apply it now. Um, so let's, let's kind of think about that. So, you know, the Lord didn't give us, um, we're, we're so thankful for systematic theology. We're going to be teaching systematic theology this summer, but the Bible's not written in a systematic theology kind of way. Um, the Bible's written as a story. It's a true story. It's a historical. It's about real people. Uh, begins with historical events. Seven-day creation, right? It goes then to include man's fall and progresses to reveal the different steps God takes to reconcile man to himself. So that's what we're wanting to understand, this redemptive storyline between Genesis and Revelation. So like any story, it has a beginning, right? And it has an end. It begins with some key characters. So we have Adam, Eve, Satan, and a male child. That's the seed right? That tells us a ton right there, doesn't it? And so we want to be, so what, what, how is this, how is the beginning of the story, what's the plot, what's the storyline that comes out of that? I, I want to, in fact, encourage you to have a little bit of fun with this. Um, it's amazing how much you can learn about eschatology and the goal. What is the goal of eschatology? What is the chief end of eschatology? Just you might jot this down this afternoon. Read the first three chapters of Genesis, and then read the last three chapters of Revelation. And I think you're going to go, oh my goodness! I mean, do you ever read your books that way? Do you ever go like, okay, I'm going to read the first chapter, but I'm going to already jump to the last chapter, and so then like, no, I don't want to read that. that way. I'm not saying that you have to read it that way. Um, but there, there are just some ways. I wasn't a very good student, so I looked for every shortcut I could possibly get to somehow studying the least possible and still sort of getting it, right? Um, well, it's amazing. This is actually, a, a, I think, a helpful thing. What, what, what was the start of the story? How did the story end? And you're going to have a better heart to grasp what was the redemptive storyline between the beginning and between the end. So those are some things that I would just hope that you um, could, take, could take out of what we're doing uh, this weekend.
Um, what you're going to discover is there's nothing that happens by mistake as you study the Bible. There's no irrelevant characters. There's a purpose behind everything and for everyone. Um, there's a purpose between, behind every Old Testament uh, text and story and prophecy. And we learn most significantly there's a purpose behind the male child that was promised that Eve would bear, that would crush the serpent's head. Um, there's, what is the goal of eschatology? What is the chief end of eschatology? We learned there was a purpose behind the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, as well as a purpose for Israel. Alan was talking about that. We learned there's a purpose for the life and work of, of Christ the Messiah. We learned that there's a purpose behind the church. We learned that everything works together for that purpose. And for these reasons, the end of the story tells us as much about the beginning of the story. It tells us a whole lot. We, 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 we want to be able to benefit from the New Testament as something that helps us better understand our Old Testament, right? So, so the end of the story, we're so fortunate to have the canon of Scripture that we can, we can look at the end and better understand the storyline between the beginning and the, and the end. Um, so it helps us to understand the conclusion of the story. Understanding the conclusion helps us comprehend the overall purpose, the big picture. That's why the, the first and last chapter kind of a thing. Um, in any good plot line, the beginning uh, always makes more sense after we finish reading the last chapter. I mean, especially if you're a like whodunit kind of person, you know. I, I do like whodunits. And, and, you know, you get to the end, you go, oh, I should have seen that. Oh, I, I thought it was that guy. You know, I mean, you know, but it was the end that helped you understand, better understand what was going on in the middle of it. Um, for instance, we learn about the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 concerning the seed of the woman. When we read about Christ dying on the cross, uh, reading about the death of Christ in the Gospels, it, it doesn't change the original meaning of the promise in Genesis. It just adds clarity to what God was saying to Adam and Eve about that promised seed. Um, so we should expect the person of Christ in the gospel, the theme of the New Testament, would be the theme of the Old Testament. We see the gospel introduced right away, immediately after sin first entered the world. As soon as Adam and Eve brought death and judgment into the world, God brought the good news of the gospel into the world. Uh, the world had been plummeted into darkness, and the light of the gospel came chasing the darkness. I would, I, so, so I use that phrase purposefully because I would hope that's what you would see between Genesis and Revelation. It's not darkness prevailing. Right from the very beginning, God was chasing the darkness. God was, God was right away giving hope to all who would put their trust in that promised Son of God to banish the darkness, to chase it away. And so there's, there's that, that wonderful storyline of... of uh, of, of the Bible, the promise of a seed, the promised male child. Uh, it was reissued, wasn't it, to Abraham. Uh, the covenant established with Abraham was personally renewed by God with Abraham's child, uh, Isaac, and then a bit, a bit later to his grandchild Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. Jacob's 12 sons, they're the founding fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, but it was his fourth son, Judah that God chose to be the progenitor for the Messiah. 
Eventually, the carrier of the promised seed was narrowed down to the, king, to the line of King David. So here we go. You see, here we go, chasing darkness, chasing darkness, chasing darkness. God is keeping that, that seed, that Messiah, in full view, the whole story, isn't he? Isn't it amazing? The more we keep our eyes on him, the more faith we're going to have for whatever trial we face. Um, so so it's, it's the beauty about this redemptive historical way of, of reading your Bible. You get to the New Testament, we learn the promised heir of Abraham did not include all of Abraham's physical children, but only one child, Jesus. Jesus is the promised seed of Eve, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Judah, and of David. And then Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings, right? This is Galatians 3.16. He wasn't referring to many. He was referring to one, to your offspring, who is Christ. And now all who put their faith in him become children of Abraham. And so that's what Alan was just talking about. It's trusting that God would bring the Messiah. He would be the seed of the woman. He would be the, the, the seed of Abraham. He would be the son of David. The, if, whoever puts their faith and trust in him would be saved. And so, so I just share that with you because we, we, hope, we hope that the, you know, we, we, we teach expositorily as a church so that you could, you could be grasping these things. You know, we, we start at the first verse of the first chapter of a book and we go verse by verse typically until we get to the last verse in the last chapter because we want you to be regularly seeing the redemptive storyline of Jesus in everything that we're teaching and preaching, whether, it's, whether it was through Daniel. I hope you, you were blessed by the book of Daniel and how much we saw Jesus in the book of Daniel. Um, or whether it's a book like Revelation, like we're doing now. So, you know, that's what takes us into, that's why it's so important to understand that, that it's in, remember the, the, the prophecy was that in Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed. Well, that makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? In Christ, Abraham's seed, people from all nations can be saved. So that, that, those kind of things make so much more sense. And that's why it's important to understand phrases like spiritual Israel. Would you, so if I asked you this question, are you part of spiritual Israel? What would you say? Yes. Yeah, because of faith in the seed of Abraham, right? Because of faith in Christ our Lord. So yes, we're spiritual. If I asked you this, did any of you grow up singing, Father Abraham and many sons? Many sons had Father Abraham. Let's go. I am one of them. And so are you. So I sang that song as an adult. I, as an adult adult. I mean, I, I didn't know. I really didn't know what I was singing. You know, I just kind of thought, well, this is just a fun children's song. Teach them something about Abraham. Oh, my goodness. Are you a child of Abraham? Yeah, because Abraham was saved, saved the same way you're saved, right? By faith in the promise of the Messiah. We're saved by faith in the Messiah who's already come, right? We are children of Abraham. We're the people of God. So think of the, the, the phrases that Scripture uses, both in the Old and, and New Testament. We're the people of God. 
um, both ethnic Jews and people of all ethnicities become one in Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, the phrase is the church. Um, so I would just, if, if the Lord moves you toward amillennial theology or postmillennial, I think you probably could say this too, you may hear somebody go, oh, th- their knee-jerk reaction may be, well, that means uh, you're, you're, uh, you believe in replacement theology, that somehow the church has replaced Israel. Your answer to that would be no, 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 no. I believe that the, the Abrahamic covenant has been fulfilled in people from all ethnicities being saved, including ethnic Jews. They're putting their faith in Jesus, just the way I put my faith in Jesus. And let's pray for more ethnic Jews to put their faith in Jesus. And we're praying that, that, there, would be, that there would be a move of God in, in the last of the last days where so many ethnic Jews would come to know Christ as their, as their Messiah, as their saving Messiah. Um, so we, if, if anyone ever would say that about our church or about Alan or I or whatever, no, no, we're, we, we're not, we don't believe in replacement theology. We, if anything, there's an expansion uh, to what God did with his people from the old, in the old covenant to what he's doing with his people in the new covenant. And it includes both Jew and Gentile. You know, so we are, we, are, we are thrilled about those kind of things. So that would be a pastoral implication. Um, Alan mentioned this last night. I, I used to be invited to be on the, the Christian network many years ago um, until I started saying things like I'm saying today. Um, one of the problems of what... what uh, There's a, there's a tendency for people to think that God is going to save the Jews because they're Jews, not because they put faith in Jesus. Did that ever work? Did God save the Jews because they had the law? Is that what, so did, so that, is that what, no, the law just revealed what? How much they need the Messiah, right? Did, the, did, did circumcision save the Jews? No, no. Circumcision revealed that I need my heart to be changed. I, I, I don't need it just a cutting away of the flesh and religious ceremonies. I need my heart to be changed. Um, did being ethnic Israel ever save Israel? Never did. It never did. It was faith in the Messiah. That's how it's always been. And so... Um, it's just living in our neck of the woods with the, the TV station that, that is here and what it puts out. Um, they tend to go in that direction. So we would just be, just encourage you to be careful about that. Um, there's some more practical things here. Uh, Alan covered so many things so well. Uh, so don't worry, I'm not going to give you all these notes that I've got here. Uh, otherwise, it would be a never-ending eschatology weekend. Um, I think we've, uh, Alan's done fan, a fantastic job to talk about that, that, that Jesus is reigning now over his people, uh, both those that are living right now, us, as well as those who have already gone home to be with him. 
Um, uh, so let's just, let's talk a little bit about that because one of the things that we would hope of you understanding the reign of Christ now, that, that this millennium age, Christ is reigning. We've talked about how optimistic post-millennialism is, and there's really some beautiful things to that in regard to the gospel being so powerful that one day it will, and again, these are not great words, but it would Christianize the whole world, right? Um, I believe our amillennial, the amillennial view is just as optimistic, um, especially if you go into third world nations, um, the unstoppability of the gospel is our victory. You guys, so we're already dead in sin and transgression, right? We're dead to God, we're alive to sin. So you take a dead, sinful heart already, and now you put the, the mud of Hinduism on blind eyes, on already blind eyes. They're already blind to God. And you put the mud of Hinduism on it. How in the world does that person ever get saved? You put, you put the mud of Islam on those blind eyes. In the United States, you put the mud of prosperity. Um, isn't it great news to know that in the gospel of the kingdom, we have, we have absolute 100% confidence that if we'll go into all the world, God will save people. There's, there's no, how can we put this? You've heard of unreached people groups. Isn't it good to remember there are no unreachable people groups? They're just currently unreached. But there's no unreachable people groups. So the, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel of the kingdom. And this gospel grows. How does it grow? Not because we're, we're culturized, not, not because we're trying to, to transform our culture into a Christian culture. This kingdom grows one saved soul at a time. And, and the growth is an amazing growth. One writer put it like this, that it's kind of interesting that before, uh, before Christ comes and, and uh, lives a sinless life, dies a substitutionary death, rises again in a justifying, victorious resurrection, um, it seems like the numbers of people being saved, numbers of people putting their faith in the Messiah, seem to be more of a smaller event. Right when Jesus comes. He called it like this. It's like when you put your popcorn in the microwave. This <laughs> is so bad. Just, the conveniences have made me more impatient. It's terrible. It, it's like they're supposed to help with our impatience. It's like I have to wait three and a half minutes for this popcorn? That means have you put it in and you're going, something's wrong. There's nothing happening. Because that first minute, maybe you get one... I think that's kind of how things were going in the Old Covenant, right? Jesus comes, and what does he do? He binds the, uh, the serpent. He binds Satan to keep, the, the, to keep people from being deceived by all the other things in their world and all these other nations. And right away, what happens at Pentecost? 3,000 get saved. Not long after that, 5,000 get saved. The massive numbers of people that the Lord is saving between Christ's first coming and today, it's, well, Alan, it's in your chapter, it was a number that was uncountable. 
wasn't it? The, the number of people saved is uncountable. We have an optimistic view of, of the progress and growth of the kingdom in amillennialism too. Um, so so we, we, again, the, the caution would be, um, especially in, you know, think, I, I love, con- how do you say these things? <laughs> Midland, Texas is not New York City, right? <laughs> um, Midland, Texas is not Los Angeles. Um, um, it's really easy in Midland, Texas to, to confuse Republican values and say that that's Christian. It's almost like you're saying Republican is the, is the soil that Christianity grows in. It, it's, it's just easy to focus on changing culture. If we could today snap our fingers and change culture, but no hearts have been changed, what would happen to culture? It'd go right back to where it was in the beginning. We have got to be a people who, yes, we, use your gifts and talents to bring God glory in your workplace and in your neighborhood and your sports abilities and your artistic abilities, your engineering uh, aptitudes, whatever it is, parenting, mom and dadding. I mean, just let's use every bit of God's grace to magnify the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But let's don't forget, that's, that gets people's attention. What changes their hearts is the gospel. Not, not just Christianizing things, not just making things more conservative and all these kind of things. Unless the heart is changed, nothing really will ever change, you know. So those are some, some cautions. Um, the already, not yet, we talked about. And I, I think you could look at this just from a personal standpoint that you could um, uh, think about. The, have you heard us say that there's really, you could describe your salvation in three ways. You really could describe your salvation as already and not yet. So here's how you could describe your salvation. You have been saved. That's the doctrine of justification, right? You have been saved. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, um, the righteousness of Christ is is reckoned to you. God's forgiveness is full and final. Um, At that very second, you're ready to go to heaven, right? So you've been saved. But aren't you also being saved? Aren't you also learning to live as a child of God? Aren't you also learning to love those who don't deserve it? Aren't you also learning to forgive? Aren't you also learning how to fight bitterness? Aren't you also learning how to value um, the souls of others above yourself? Aren't you? There's, so we're being saved. We're becoming more like Jesus, aren't we? So, so The already has happened. We've been saved. But part of the already is we're continuing to be saved. Now, what's the future? We we will be saved, right? So so I hope some of the eschatology that you can really just make personal, you can understand, yeah, I get the already and not yet in terms of the world we live in because it's, it's what's going on in my own heart. I've been wonderfully saved. Christ has come. He's the king of my heart. But he is progressively ruling. I'm, I'm progressively bowing my knee to him in areas where, I mean, really, if you're honest, 
aren't there some areas you're really pretty slow? You've got arthritis in your knees. I mean, you, you are not bowing some of the knees, some of the sinful habits that we have. You know, it wouldn't take long, and we could just have a cup of coffee over that. Hopefully it wouldn't take long, or you'd say, oh, man, you know, it's just, I just keep, I just, I love leisure. And I seem to, to just want to get done with work just to enjoy leisure. I, don't, I mean, whatever your, your deal is, you know, uh, how we use social media and TV and just all the kind of things. So, so we've been saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. Um, uh, just the thought of the, the uh, Christian's heart growing hotter even though the love of the world grows colder I think that's, a, that's an important part of equipping you. One person said, the wheat gets weedier and the tares get terrier. Uh, or they said, the sheep get sheepier and the goats get goatier. Um, are just some ways to be able to describe uh, some of those things. So, so we're not surprised. We're not surprised with, with what seems to be a darkening of, of, of what's going on in our culture. Uh, we won't be surprised that there's some, some pretty pronounced persecution. The more there's a fight for uh, abortion rights, the more there's a fight for, for any definition of gender that you want, you just, whatever you feel is your gender, whatever you, the more these things proliferate and the more the church goes back to God's plan for marriage, God's plan for the sanctity of human life, God's plan, there's going to be some headbutting, aren't there? And, and there's, there's likely going to be some, some persecution that comes with that. But it's not going to come without your heart growing hotter for Jesus. That sounds a weird way to put it. Warmer. Your love for Jesus growing greater than the adversity you're facing. That's what he'll, he'll do for us. He'll give you grace for the need at every moment. Don't fear persecution. He'll give you the grace you need at that at that moment, um, the Alan talked about the present age, the power of the age to come breaking into this present age, and I want to give you some some ways to be thinking about that in a way that makes you hunger more for heaven. Okay, so when the when the age to come first broke in was with Jesus and His resurrection. That was when it first broke in. But guys, do you know that your salvation is the age to come breaking into this present evil age? The very fact that you're saved, this, this should just root you so deeply in hope and confidence that God is going to help you go through whatever, whatever it is that you may face in your life. Because you've already been tasting of the power of the age to come. The, the very reason that you want heaven is because heaven's, a taste of heaven is already, is, has already gone past your lips and onto your tongue, you know? How about the gift of healing? We, we, make, we make so much of healing as though somehow healing is going to change my heart. I pray, we believe in healing, and we'll, if we, we, we anoint with oil, we pray for the sick, and God heals. We believe that he continues to do miraculous works of healing today. But is, is healing the final answer? 
That's what's just so easy to be praying for healing as though the healing is just going to be, it's going to, that's going to change my world. Uh, whatever it is, no more cancer. Well, that's going to change my world. You'll feel better. But it's your heart that needs to be changed, right? Um, when God does a miracle of healing, it's not to get us to think that that was what I most needed. It's to get you thinking about heaven. It's to get you thinking about, man, God healed me in this one way. I can't wait for heaven. Because in heaven, I'll be healed in every way. How about loving people? How about loving your enemies? Do you think that's just coming from you? That's, that's the power of the age to come through the ministry of the Holy Spirit giving you this divine power to love people who don't love you. Forgiving people. I mean, this is, it's all about Jesus, but I think, I think all of these things are supposed to wet our whistle, so to speak, to get us to long more and more for heaven. The joy of the Lord on that day. Enter into the joy of your master, right? Permanent joy. Not just here and there kind of joy. Well, let me just give you a few last thoughts. Um, just personally, uh, I used to be, have a pre-mill view. And as I studied the ah-mill and post-mill, I, I just came to a place in the pre-mill view during the millennium you believe that, the, that physical death will continue after the second coming of Christ. Natural creation will continue to labor under the curse. New heavens and new earth won't happen for a thousand years after Christ has come. That unbelieving men and women can still come to faith after the second coming of Jesus. The, the urgency, remember how Peter said, today is the day of salvation. I just don't see like second chances, you know? It, you die and then there's the judgment. Um, unbelieving men and women can still come to faith after the coming of Jesus. That unbelievers won't be resurrected until a thousand years after the coming of Jesus. That unbelievers won't be finally judged until a thousand years after the coming of Jesus. I don't know, you know if, how many of you have thought this through. But remember how the Bible says that there won't be any marriage in, in uh, heaven for the believer? What's going on during the millennium? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a <laughs> If there is a literal 1,000-year millennium, and if during that millennium I can no longer be married to that beautiful woman on the front row, but unbelievers living in the millennium can be married, I'm going to be pouting during the millennium. I am just... <sighs> there were just things that, that just didn't seem to... To, you know, the, again, so here's where I came out. Scripture seems to show that when Jesus comes back, death is swallowed up in victory. There will be no more death. The natural creation is, is delivered from the curse and is redeemed. The new heavens and new earth come with the second coming of Jesus. All chances to come to faith end with the second coming. The resurrection of all and the judgment of all take place at the second coming. Those things are what kind of kind of finalize my shift into the amillennial view. So just pastorally, um, 
We, our charge, uh, according to this, to the gospel as the foundation of this, but to this eschatological view, is to equip you to be confident in the power of the gospel to save people dead in sin from every people group, that there are no unreachable people groups um, because Satan has been bound. I hope that, I, I, that'd be one of the takeaways I hope you could leave here with. Who, do you have someone you've been praying for, for their salvation? Let me ask you, somebody praying for somebody for the last 10 years, but the person's still not saved. Anybody besides us? We've, we've got a massive swath of family that hasn't yet come to know Jesus. And it kind of shakes you. It makes you wonder, are we screwing it? I don't think I should use that word. That's how I feel. Are we just that bad at sharing your gospel, Lord? And then we remember, no, wait a minute. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that Satan has been bound from deceiving the, the nations about Jesus being Lord and Savior of all. I, I hope you have renewed hope to pray until your last breath for the salvation of family members and friends. And you pray with hope that God is more able to overcome their resistance than they are able to resist. That's our hope. That's our hope. And that goes way beyond just our friends and family. That goes into all the unreached people groups of the world. We would hope that that pastoral implication could be a blessing to you. We want to equip you to live in hope of the growth of righteousness personally and globally in spite of increasing darkness. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm wondering how many of us are, are kind of discouraged right now about some areas where I'm not growing. And my not growing in those areas are affecting other parts of my life. They're affecting my family. And I'm getting pretty discouraged. Isn't, this, isn't the thought of the ever-growing kingdom of God, first already and not yet in you, right? That God is growing you in righteousness. Even when you don't see it, His, his spirit is inside you. It's, his name is on you. His glory is, is not about you doing what you need to do. It's about him fulfilling what he's promised to do in you. Oh, be confident about God's ever-increasing righteousness until we see him in that, on that day where, where righteousness will, will be the story of everything, our hearts, the world we live in. But be encouraged about your growth in personal righteousness as well as the growth in righteousness worldwide as we share the gospel. Um, we want to equip you to persevere till you die or until the second coming of Christ. Um, when we get to, to chapter 12 tomorrow, I would ask you to read chapter 11. You'll be amazed. I hope that just this weekend will, we'll, we'll, chapter 11, <laughs> so here's how, as I'm doing my studies, so I'm open in different commentaries and things, and you open one commentary and says, Revelation 11 is the hardest chapter in the Bible to understand. 
great. That's the way to start. <laughs> and then you start coming across other writers that say the same thing. I'm hoping that you can, so read Revelation, would you, before tomorrow morning? Oh, Revelation 11. I'm going to think that just even this weekend, is, I think you're going to be going, ooh, yeah, there's some pretty wild stuff here. But I see a redemptive storyline. I see a redemptive storyline. Um, in chapter 12, so here's a reality. I'm going to touch on this some tomorrow, too. How do we overcome? Revelation 12 tells us how we overcome. Some of you have memorized that verse. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, word of our testimony, and not loving our lives unto death. We want to equip you for that. We want to equip you to better love the gospel. We want to equip you to better share the gospel, the witness of the gospel. It's not the word of my testimony. I used to be a, a drug addict and now I'm not. That's the, no, it's your testimony about the blood of the lamb. That's, that's what it's about. It's the blood of the lamb. That's our confidence. It's our testimony about the blood of the lamb. And how did, how did Christ overcome? This is how he overcame. He hung on a cross, bearing the sins of all who would believe in him, rising from the dead on the third day. How do his people overcome? By not loving our lives, even unto death, that, that we are so convinced of the promises of the gospel, our eternal hope uh, to be with him forever, that we're, we're willing to lay our lives down for the sake of other people knowing Jesus. You know. That's, that's what we want to equip you for. We want to equip you to overcome. I, I, just, I just don't, in the other, the other views, the, the picture of suffering continuing until Jesus comes the second time, it just seems to me to be in the scriptures. And so we want to prepare you to suffer well. We want to prepare you to suffer with hope in Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. Uh, overcoming by laying down our lives. I mean, how many, how many prosperity preachers use that word? You're an overcomer. I don't know why they have that southern accent. But you're an overcomer. Meanwhile, Jesus is hanging in the background on the cross. This is how you overcome. This is how, my, this is how the Savior overcame. This is how his people overcome with the promise of eternal glory, right? Um, and the last one is this. So, Alan, I'm not too much past 11. The last, the last one is this. I think I could speak for our leadership team on this. We will not regret equipping you to endure to the end, even if there's a rapture. But you know what I will regret? I will regret preparing you for a rapture if you had to endure to the end. That maybe, that's more, maybe I should say that. That's more my heart. You can ask Alan or Hugh if, if that resonates with them. I think that would please the Lord in how we care for your souls. To trust him 
regardless of what you have to walk through, that he's going to hold you and keep your soul until you see him face to face. And we want to equip you for that.